0: Welcome to Ask the Rabbi with Rabbi Menachem Creditor, a Jcast Network podcast. Join Rabbi Creditor each month as he is asked questions about Judaism, Jewish ritual, and Jewish thought by members of his community at Congregation Nitivot Shalom in Berkeley, California, and tries to provide understanding and deeper meaning in Jewish life and learning. For more information about Rabbi Creditor, please visit menachemcreditor.org. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. here and anywhere else to um, ask the rabbi session number one. Um, It's an exciting, unscripted conversation. And the truth is, I enjoy it also because I don't have to prepare much, uh, except everything that led up to now hopefully prepares me to hear questions and think out loud with you. So uh, no one's in charge. Who's first?
1: Chris. (laughs) All right, so, assuming I wanted to hunt my own food, is there a way to make deer, which is a kosher animal, a kosher kill if I were to do a heart shot or some sort of direct kill shot so that it's not suffering? Does it still have to be throat slashed and preserved in salt and all that that goes with it?
0: There is no way to hunt an animal and for it to be kosher.
1: Okay, thank you.
0: The presumption on the part of halacha, uh, Jewish law, is that... Um, inasmuch as I know that there are hunters who think about compassion and the type of kill, um, that within shechita, the, the traditional laws for slaughter, uh, the compassionate practice is defined by specific actions. And as halakha continues to ev- ev- uh, evolve, though this wasn't your question, um, the way that um, animals are treated in the process of the slaughter also comes under very, very deep scrutiny. Mm-hmm. And the controversies in the... In the kashrut world right now about the slaughter of animals is related to why that isn't acceptable. If it were completely unformed and you only had the idea, then the answer might be yes. The right kind of, uh, the right kind of kill would be compassionate but wouldn't be halakhic.
1: How about Esav who was hunting after the laws came about and was feeding his family hunt?
0: So your question is a good one. Esav was hunting but not after the laws came about. Esau was hunting before the laws came about, even though that's the proto-Jew within the family. Um, He was doing what his father Isaac asked, but Sinai hadn't happened yet. So since Sinai happened later, and even then the rules of slaughter were not spelled out with the specificity that's happened over time, it's it's an anachronism that Halakha doesn't shy away from, but isn't applicable in this case. Thank you. You're welcome. So I want to
1: follow up on that, because then... If you are Jewish and following Kashrut, then how would you have a, how would you hunt an animal in the wild? How would you live off the land? I
0: mean, if you were, Donald
1: Jews. Always lived in Brooklyn. in <laughs> <laughs> well said, well said. I'm just
0: saying. Like, if just you if you well, I can answer the question for now, yeah. right? How does a meat-eating, kosher-keeping Jew act.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And the answer is they buy kosher certified meat.
2: Right.
0: Um, during the time that that wasn't possible, um, one of the requirements for, cut for kosher animals is that they're domestic. Mm-hmm. They're domesticated animals. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, as opposed to animals of prey, or animals that are hunted, mm-hmm. um, animals that are going to be slaughtered for the purpose of Kosher eating are kept until they're killed, and so you would find a way to keep the animals. We don't hunt cows, right? Right. So um, the kind of animals that we would eat, we would farm. Well,
1: what about Jewish people who like to
2: hunt? There's got to be some. There's a lot of. (laughs) There's a tremendous amount of
0: controversy in terms of in terms of hunting, whether or not hunting is acceptable <laughs> in Jewish law. I grew the, up
1: in Minnesota, and so I'm just like thinking about I mean, I know that there's like five I'm
0: Jewish bummed about <laughs> this, too. Yeah. Let me Minnesota tell you. I live in St. Louis Park. But so, I yeah, know. so I'll say this. As as Jewish law is not monolithic,
1: yeah.
0: right? it's important for, for me to acknowledge, although I think we all know it, that different rabbis in different times and places mm-hmm. have different answers. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, a very powerful piece was written actually ed- I edited it into a a book that I put out called Rabbis Against Gun Violence and it was a question asked by a, a friend of mine who's a scholar in residence Justice last Shabbat, Rabbi Aaron Alexander and in this piece he finds uh, tshuva, a legal response I um, forget how long ago it was but recent-ish um, where the question is asked can a Jew hunt mm-hmm. for sport
2: mm-hmm.
0: right because Hunting for meat, you can't, you can't eat that meat, it's not kosher. Hunting for sport, is that halakhically permissible? And uh, this tshuva that Aaron analyzes and and brings forward in the context of a gun violence epidemic in our country, um, answers that a strict reading of the law would say yes, as long as you're not causing an animal to suffer. Halakhically, strictly, it could be okay. But there is no reason for it if it is for sport. There's no justifiable reason from within halakha to allow it. And so in as much as there can be legitimate arguments for for marksmanship and for hunting, uh, within the realm of ethics, it's possible. The question is, is it necessary? Mm -hmm. And frankly, from my perspective, and I, I line up with Aaron on most things, actually, um it's not to say that I grew up in a culture that hunted so I can't speak from within it what I can say is that the culture that we as a country seem to be uh, perpetuating is one where guns uh, are important and deserve protection more than people so inasmuch as much as hunting is not about people being shot guns themselves should be treated with such great care so the question is Halachically, when therefore would uh, the use of a gun or an arrow or things like that be acceptable? And the answer is when necessary, mm-hmm. at least from my perspective. Got it. So, so if someone asked me, and I'm, I haven't been asked directly, because if I give a direct answer, that actually becomes halachically binding on the person who asked me for an answer. Um, may I hunt? If someone asked me that directly, I would say no. And for sport.
3: What if you were hunting to feed non Jews?
0: What if you were hunting to feed non Jews? That's, that that's a good
2: It's
0: a that's good question. A I, I think because What we're, if they
3: were very hungry non Jews?
0: <laughs> if we were asking within this context, there's still sense. no ethical mandate. There's no necessity to reanalyze the question because in our world where consumption is varied, we have access to food, we have access to anything, really. Um, so the real question that would have a halachic sort of conversation would be, can you buy non-kosher food for a non-Jew? Which I remember in New York I had a relationship with a guy who was living on the street right outside of my dorm. His name was Kevin, and uh, he loved, loved cheeseburgers. Um, and he was studying for his GED, he said, I, I really wanted to do whatever I could. So he wanted a cheeseburger, and I actually stopped, and I didn't say it out loud to him, but I was thinking to myself, "Am I allowed to do this? I can get him food, but a even if it were just a burger, it's not kosher. But a cheeseburger, I just feel really w- wigged out about." Um, and the answer, what for me was yes, even though a non-Jew is not allowed, uh, a a Jew is not allowed to benefit from non-kosher food. I I felt that it wasn't about my benefit that this was. So I made myself. In that moment, uh, uh, decision. Um, but hunting would be the same thing. It's not about who's the meat for, it's about is the action ethical, is the action halakhically permissible.
4: So this is going even further into a gray area. What about falconry? I
0: Define the question so that I can understand.
4: So, better. in the case of hunting, using a bird, like training a bird of prey to hunt other animals um, for.
0: Uh, not for the purpose of eating those animals. So, to be honest, um, I can't speak from within the tradition where that was mainstream, but I can say that um, there are better uses of our time. <laughs> <laughs> and so, in as much as I am sure that there's an artistry to it, I am sure that there are tre- tremendously skilled people who give thought to the ethical dimension of what they're doing. That could be true of so many different things that I think can be used for violence. Given the fact that a falcon isn't trained to be merciful to its prey, um, I find it to be a a perpetuation of a lack of mercy. And there are Jewish rules about lechaim, causing pain to a living anything, a living creature. Um, And I really think this is both a halachic and sort of just a a moral statement for me. that it's just not a good use of human energy. Um there are so many points of need in the world and ways of having joy that don't cause pain. That uh, you know, I think of the question of, of dog fights, you know, just thinking about recent things in, in the news. Why is that cruel and falconry not? You know, so I, I think that those questions might have answers actually but the difference doesn't mean that they don't fall in the same family of problem.
4: Well, if I could quick respond to that, um, I think that with dog fights it's that you're putting two animals that probably wouldn't be fighting under other circumstances and you're making them fight. Whereas in the case of uh, falconry, I mean, that, that animal is going to be hunting one way or another. So what is the
0: human involvement in falconry that makes it defensible?
4: Um, I mean, I don't know if it's necessarily defensible, but I I definitely think it's not nearly as cruel as
0: a dogfight. Totally acceptable, right? So it's not as cruel. That doesn't make it not cruel. Well, I don't... I can see that
4: there's no mercy involved, but I don't know if that necessarily means that it's cruel. I mean, cruel on whose part?
0: Is it... To take delight at the what might be the natural order of prey, that seems to not be nurturing the best part of human spirit. The world as it exists has, as you know, the Lion King has it, a circle of life, um, but that doesn't mean that exacerbating the death cycle or witnessing it with joy uh, is, is necessarily bringing out the best of being a human being.
5: Um, I didn't realize until recently that there was the whole preparation of, um, I knew there were animals that you could and could not eat that were, were not kosher, but I didn't realize that you cleaned them in a special way and salted them and tried to like drain the blood from them. And so I'm curious what the significance of blood and the mm. aversion to blood and how that plays into, you know, can you eat a rare steak? is
0: it's a great question in the Torah itself it says we do not eat blood for blood is the life Um, so blood carries on both that very biblical very clear language biblical injunction we don't eat blood we don't consume it Um, and blood is also in different parts of Torah and in Jewish practice either taboo or it's just always potent in this very powerful way there's a book by Lawrence Hoffman called um, Covenant of Blood in which he analyzes circumcision in comparison to other kinds of blood so his big comparison is between menstrual blood and circumcision blood where he his his observation or suggestion is that the rabbis weren't comfortable with blood they couldn't control but blood they could control was a reason for celebration so when blood happens at a circumcision, that's a moment of covenantal joy, in fact. Inasmuch as it's very complicated and painful, it's a moment of redemption. In a moment of menstruation for the ancient rabbis, not to say that this is Jewish language today, they were scared because they didn't know when it started or stopped, and they couldn't control it. Um, and so blood is is scary. blood is powerful. When the high priest would achieve forgiveness for everyone they would sprinkle blood. On the altar, there are traditions of when you dash blood. The blood from sacrifices in the Jerusalem temple or the Mishkan in the desert or elsewhere had very specific ways that it was supposed to flow. So the significance of blood is that it is, it is, it is pure life. And we could together interpret like why mm-hmm. and, and what does that mean today? but I think at the very basic level we don't have blood because it's not for consuming.
5: Mm-hmm. And so could you eat a rare steak?
0: You could if it was slaughtered and salted yeah. all the things that needed to happen yeah. um, you could have a rare steak because uh, it's it, once it goes through the process of soaking and salting mm-hmm. any residual anything does not count as that anymore. It went through the process it needed to go through. It's actually it, it's not related but it sparks a connection by people yeah in the kosher-keeping world have questions about gelatin. Gelatin being either vegetable-derived or usually from animal bones. More and more it's vegetable, but it's still very very common to find from animal bones. So the question is um, can something made with gelatin be kosher? The answer, interestingly, varies community to community. In the conservative movement, the answer is yes, because Uh, Rabbi Isaac Klein wrote this tshuva, wrote the legal response. Once the gelatin, once the bones go through a process by which they're ground up, they're treated with chemicals, they become emulsifiers, whatever, they are no longer the bone. They've gone through such a rigorous process, they're no longer what they once were. Um, Interestingly enough, the Orthodox world in America typically doesn't accept that ruling, but the chief rabbinate in Israel does. So mentos or gum and stuff like that that has gelatin that would be sold in the United States and would not be considered kosher by the Orthodox world when it's shipped to Israel many times they slap a sticker on it saying kosher according to the chief rabbinate of Israel. Same stuff but in a different community and the answer though it's not about rare steak Mm -hmm. it leads me to make a comparison, right? There are times where when something goes through a process, even if your eyes observe it in a certain way, halakhically it's not that uh, Indigo Montoya, right? Uh, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. Once to go through the process of transformation, it's something new.
1: I have questions about, um, about my kid and conversion. Mm-hmm. And I'm just, I think that you've told me this before, but I can't remember all of the parts. So what is his process?
0: It is different than your process, uh, and his process. Before I answer, like in a clinical way, like his his process is having you as his mother,
2: mm-hmm.
0: right? I mean, so um, for a woman to uh, ritually convert after a period of learning, there is mikvah and there is a beit The mikveh is uh, in the other order: beit first, meeting with a group of three rabbis who are part of affirming. Part of an affirming process. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not about what year was a shulchan aruch written. Um, That's good to know. Um, It's it's about what is your identity, what is different now, what's this process been, what are your commitments, and and where where is this in you? How do you relate to the larger we of the Jewish people? Um, And then the immersion in the mikvah, witnessed either uh, by witness in there or orally through a door, and then sacred paperwork. That's the whole thing. Mm -hmm. Um, Conversion for a man, or for a boy, uh, includes also, if they haven't been medically circumcised, circumcision. If they have been medically circumcised, there's something called hatafat dambrit, which is the symbolic drawing of a drop of blood. Um, How do you spell that? In transliterated? Yeah. H-A-T-A-F-A-T. Hatafat DAM, D A M, which means blood, BRIT, B R I T, which means covenant. Um, and, uh, what does mean?
2: I'm uh, Drawing of. Drawing of, yeah.
0: Um, and uh, Hattafat and BRIT takes place either a urologist or a, or a moil, or sometimes there's a urologist who's trained as a moil, and there are blessings to say in that moment. And I've, I've actually been present more times than I ever thought I was going to be uh, in that very, very powerful and doesn't always it's not always a decision that a family makes. Um after that and for a child obviously it's not about like how much do you know and can you state your existential state. Um, <laughs> when a child is not yet of the age of majority, it's the parents' responsibility. So the baiting would probably be the two of you combined, were that appropriate in that moment. And then each one of you would take a turn in mikvah. Um it it can be Radic- that's
1: instead of or in in addition to the circumcision? To fa-
0: if if there's a medical circumcision already, hatafatam breed is all that's necessary. What
1: if there's a bris?
0: If there was already a bris?
1: Yeah.
0: Ah, well that's a different question, I didn't know that. Yes, if we're there was-
1: all good there, <laughs> that part <laughs> is good, done.
0: That's lovely. It's even simpler. Lovely.
2: Well, look, you know, I,
0: I I've spoken about this uh, many many times. Um, I actually did my son's bris myself, yeah. uh, and so, lovely is always the wrong word, but intense and and holy, in ways that take a lot of unpacking. Uh, and for me, uh, I I gave a Yom Kippur sermon that year. About the experience, which is not to say, number one, that I hope anyone speaks to my son about the fact that I've spoken about it. <laughs> um, and I, you know, as a, as a rabbi's kid myself, I'm very conscious of the fact that sharing that is can be very intense. Um, but also, heard that one. yeah, um, and and also, you know, the idea that pain is part of covenant is really, really intense. It's really hard. Anyone who says yes, we do it and it's not painful, that that's a lie. And yes, we do it and it's not a big deal, that's a lie. We do it, and it's a big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, so, given the fact that the B'rit was already done, um, then there is no need for another B'rit, nor is there a need for a hatafatam B'rit. That's all done. It's Mikvah.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And many times at a Betin, when it's a parent and a child, the parent then is asked a very specific question, which is, you, rec- you recognize that the responsibility for your child's Jewishness is part of your Jewish journey. But I think that's the presumption of any parent leading a child to beit din and mikvah. Mm-hmm. Um, but given that the breed happened, just mikvah.
1: When does that mikvah happen? And then bat mitzvah and all of that, too.
0: Bat mitzvah? Bar, bat. Bar mitzvah for him. Yeah, bar. Maybe bat mitzvah for you. Yeah, right.
1: But for him, we're talking
0: about him. Uh, a bar mitzvah for him would happen when he was yeah. 13.
1: So the mikveh, when does the mikvah happen?
0: It could happen tomorrow.
1: Whenever. But that's a part of his process of being Jewish, because Correct. I
0: am not. Correct. Correct. And the important thing in that state, first of all, the beauty of the fact that you're the one bringing him, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, so intense. Um, in addition to which, for him, he—I would imagine—and maybe I don't know, but. Um, he, if he thinks of himself in identity terms at all, which children don't always, mm-hmm. I can't imagine that he would think of himself as anything other than your child, anything other than Jewish. That being the case, the language of conversion doesn't work either, both on a developmental level, on an emotional level, on mm-hmm. an existential level. The only level on which it works is halakhic.
2: Mm-hmm. And
0: so it's affirmation. It's beautiful. And in fact, on a parenting level, I might even say, like, wouldn't it be beautiful for you to say to him, we're going to go into this very special place together. Mm-hmm. He doesn't need to know more than that because, number one, and for children who are older, this is a very big concern of mine, I never want them to think that a rabbi thinks they're not Jewish yet.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: It's a terrible, terrible thing. And many children grow up in families where they are Jewish to their core, and halachically they're not yet.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So I've actually had the situation where um, uh, the it's a family with a father and a mother and children, um, and the father is jewish the mother is not the mother is just in love with judaism mm-hmm. the only reason she's converting is because she just really wants it mm-hmm. but the child has always thought of themselves as jewish
2: mm-hmm.
0: so it's a boy who is older and the mother said to the to me what do i do mm-hmm. right had a medical circumcision but not a not a bris mm-hmm. and said to me what do i do mm-hmm. and i said you're the one who has to talk to your child. and obviously much older than yours. I said, you have to talk to your child because your child is never going to hear from a rabbi that they're not Jewish, mm-hmm. that they need to do a circumcision in order to be Jewish, even though they're already Jewish. Mm-hmm. right? So the not Jewish enough is a real syndrome in the in the halakhic world. Um, and so in that case, what happened, and it was radically powerful, was that the mother did go home, spoke to the child, and said... We can celebrate your bar mitzvah, your life, in a reform shul where the rules are different. You don't have Mm -hmm. to do this. Um, But if you want to do it in a conservative shul, this is what you have to do. And he went within five minutes from saying, hell no, Mm
2: -hmm.
0: right, to thinking about it with her, Mm -hmm. really talking about it together, and saying, I want to be a part of the Jewish people in this way. Mm -hmm. And in the end, did it himself. Mm -hmm. Because it's it's not hatha fatam breed is a very, very simple process. In fact, you can use um, a, a diabetes blood testing thing. Mm-hmm. It, before I ever said that to a man, I did it on myself to make sure that I could actually say it wasn't a mm-hmm. big deal. Mm-hmm. Physically, it's not a big deal. Emotionally, it's
4: right. very
0: traumatic. Um, so even in this case, it ended up beautiful. So
4: I had a question. Um, I mean, I, I've, I've heard that... Uh, conversions done by reform and conservative uh, rabbis are not accepted by orthodox and I heard that and I don't know if this is true this is just what I've heard that part of the part of the reason or even the main reason is that um, the not necessarily matters of practice but the fact that it's not always three rabbis but that it can be just um, sort of educated members of the shul that are participating and that's the main reason I mean so you can
0: tell me yeah I mean there are a lot of controversies about conversion and you know when you have parts of the Jewish world that care about Jewish law parts of the world that don't care about Jewish law and within the parts that care about Jewish law who care about it differently right it's very very complicated the big controversies right now are uh, between the diaspora and Israel uh, because the ultra Orthodox monopoly on Jewish life cycle and identity status in Israel is um, an attack on the global Jewish people's integrity. Um, to put it nicely compared to <laughs> other ways I could say it too. Um, within the denominational world, and that really it's a small, <laughs> shrinking, shrinking world, like who cares about denominational labels? But within that world, there are largely two camps that seem to be coalescing, Orthodox and not-Orthodox. Right? Because the not-Orthodox are pretty much a spectrum of belief and practice, and who interrelate in very serious ways. Uh, and the Orthodox, uh, many Orthodox, it's not fair to say there's one kind of Orthodox either, because I'm connected with a group called the Jewish Orthodox Feminist Alliance. They are vanguard Orthodox, and that's, I think, a beautiful place to be, as is probably every other part. But that's the part that feels most kindred Whereas I feel don't I don't feel kindred with many other kinds, so orthodox standards for conversion, conservative standards for conversion, reform standards for conversion are not the same. Because of that, I'd rather acknowledge where I have to say no. too so if a per- first of all, if a person comes and says, "I'd like to join your shul," I'm a Jew. I don't go like digging and say. Oh yeah? Are you a Jew? What kind of Jew are you? How do you get Jewish? Is your father Jewish? Is your mother Jewish? Was your grandmother Jewish? What's your Yiddish name? What's your Hebrew I, You know, that kind of a witch hunt I find to be the worst kind of judgmentalism that any community could do. And so I would presume the kashrut, it's called the chizka, I presume the status of kashrut, of this person's testimony. I do not want paperwork. There's actually this fascinating case, someone came to me years ago and said um, I'm a Jew, and my daughter is Jewish, she converted, I adopted her, and here's all the paperwork. That was like our first conversation, I said, I don't want the paperwork. You're her mother, you just told me that she's Jewish. I don't need more than your testimony. But there's this uh, culture of mistrust that leads to paperwork and its necessity. All that being said, if someone comes to me and says, I converted to Judaism, uh, in, let's say, I'm just, I don't want to use a label because I don't want to attack a label, but I converted to Judaism in a not halachic way, right? not Jewish legal way. I have to say, well, what do you mean? So the person says, I went to a swimming pool instead of a mikvah. I'll use that case. Now, that's not acceptable in my, in my shita, in my approach to Jewish law. But there is a chuba on the books that I know about that says, in case of necessity, you can use a swimming pool. Now, I happen to not like that chuba. I would never employ that chuba, But for the purpose of affirming this person's Jewish identity, if there was a way I could validate what they went through, I would never make them do another thing. I would be very upfront about that. I would say, that's not the kind of conversion process that I lead. But I know how hard you work to get here. And you just told me something that is potentially incriminating and I want to validate the Jew that you are telling me that. If someone said, I converted but I didn't go to mikveh at all, that person has to convert. So if they happen to work with a reconstructionist rabbi, a reform rabbi, a renewal rabbi, an independent rabbi, and they did that, I would have to say, you need to convert again. I know that your soul is a Jewish soul, but that's not a halachic conversion so too if someone uh, would convert and require circumcision and not have it, or and not have it. Um, the places where it doesn't make a difference at all is if the person converted with those ritual requirements fulfilled and they did it with any other kind of rabbi or, as you said, informed laypeople, Jewy Jews. Uh, the kashrut of a Jew is based on their rabbinic ordination. The whole purpose of a abating is testimony to be a gateway into the Jewish people, not to be gatekeepers out. So whereas I know that there are onerous processes that some people are put through, where they feel over and over that they are pushed away, I find that that's the worst of Judaism. It's a very marginal standpoint that becomes a prevalent practice. So let me be very sort of blunt about me, I'm a conservative rabbi. The first word when I describe myself as a Jew is Jew. Right? So it's not conservative first, it's Jew. But as a conservative rabbi, I include women on my beitin as witnesses. There are those in the world who won't count women as witnesses, and therefore, the conversions that I do based on halachic conviction, right? it's not some foreign egalitarian corruption of halakha, it is halakha that leads me to include women as witnesses. When I do that, however, that means that there are people in the Jewish world who won't accept the people who convert with me as Jewish. I think that's their problem. Right? For the purpose of Aliyah, of making Aliyah and being recognized as a Jew, conversion that is conducted by me, including women in a is fine because it's part of a denominational conversion. Um, I could make Aliyah already anyway. Yeah, agreed. No, I'm not talking about you, I'm talking about me. Mm-hmm. Right, because there are people who have no Jewish lineage at all and their conversion is a conversion as opposed to an affirmation. What right? That mean re- when you're
1: saying
0: Oh, to immigrate to Israel, get Israeli citizenship?
1: That's an aliyah. That's yeah, to
4: make
0: aliyah. Aliyah oh, literally okay. means ascent.
4: Oh,
1: okay.
0: And that's the colloquial term for moving to Israel. Oh. Yeah. And the rule for Aliyah is one grandparent. One grandparent. Because mm-hmm. actually the person who defined who's a Jew for the modern state of Israel is Hitler. If you had one what? Jewish grandparent...
6: Does not matter if it's yeah. You were a, a Jew? No. No.
0: no, not for the purpose of Aliyah.
6: But in order to do that, do you have to convert yourself beforehand, like my daughter? I'm not Jewish, my husband's Jewish. Um, so, would she have to convert in order to go to no. to Israel?
0: No. no, but she would need to convert to be a Jew. She considers
6: herself Jewish now.
0: You're talking about Israeli status.
6: Well, okay, yeah. Right, you're asking
0: me if I think she's a Jew, and the answer is yes, she's a Jew.
6: Right. You're um, asking
0: me if I think she's halakhically a Jew. No, but that's a legal question, not an identity question.
6: By conservative Jewish standards or orthodox or... Uh, I mean, you were saying you By have
0: conservative and th- orthodox mm-hmm. Jewish law,
6: mm-hmm.
0: your daughter is not halakhically Jewish. Mm-hmm. But you'll never hear me say that she's not a Jew. Right, I understand. And that. in fact, the modern orthodox rabbi in town, Rabbi Yonatan Cohen would say very much the same thing. There are orthodox rabbis who also delineate between identity and halakhic status. It's one of the ways that pluralism is possible because when the reform movement accepted patrilineal descent, meaning that the father's Jewishness determines the child's Jewishness... I'm sorry,
6: say that again, reform?
0: Reform Judaism made a radical shift some time ago uh, from Jewish law that had been established for thousands of years Mm -hmm. where the mainstream Jewish law determines Jewish identity by the mother, matrilineal descent. The reform movement, uh, over a decade ago, adopted a policy that said patrilineal descent, the father being Jewish, it can be determinative for a child's Jewishness based on the Jewishness of the family, like the Jewish consciousness, in a certain sense, of the family. Um, that was so slippery, but beautiful, I think in an inclusive way, but slippery because how do you measure the Jewishness of a family? And so the assumption in most Reformed communities is, if you have a Jewish parent, you're a Jew. Given that, when someone grows up in a Reformed Jewish community, they, you know, and they say in their heart, in their mouth, on paper, ever, I am a Jew. I had a bat mitzvah. I had a bar mitzvah. I'm a Jew. Right? But halachically, for conservative and orthodox law, they're not. And so it creates real dissension. It's very, very difficult sometimes. But to be honest... It's always surmountable. It's not actually hard to deal with. If we recognize that identity is different than halakha, if you can be a Jew in all ways but legal, then the Jews who care about law are the ones who need to solve the problem. And so person by person, if a relationship is possible, we ask the question, is this important to you? And only if this is important to you must you do anything.
1: And technically, though, If her daughter wanted to become a citizen of Israel, she could not because she has not converted under orthodox
0: halakhic law. No. How
1: does that
2: work? Yes,
0: there's a problem. Becoming a citizen is different than the law of return. I actually am not well-versed in terms of the bureaucracy. Um, I have colleagues I turn to, uh and there are those of us who have gone through it. But what's important is, and I'm not telling you what to do or your daughter at all, if your daughter... um, were to affirm her Jewish identity in a halakhic sense, right? then there would be no issue of aliyah, the, which there wasn't anyway, nor of citizenship.
6: Then why would she want to? What would be the point? I don't know. Why would anyone want to? I, I'm, not, I just, I'm not clear then. Why it's would one concerned. want to? I
0: to do what? To affirm a Jewish identity, even when a, the father is Jewish, why go through any conversion or affirmation? Why would that be? My
7: father wanted too. I, mean, I think for wine. me, that I became a part of Netivot Shalom, and Halacha became important to me. And so, being a fully, actively able to participate in Jewish ritual in every way, and if you know me well, you know that, like, I want to learn all the ways to do all the things and lead everything and, like, <laughs> learn to do everything, but... Um, being able to participate in this specific community became important to me, and, um, became important to me, and so being Jewish by the standards of who is a Jew by thousands of years of tradition became important to me. And sometimes it can be a little confusing because I don't consider my sister any less Jewish than me, but want well, my kids have a bar bat mitzvah someday, she will you know, be able to live in aliyad at a conservative synagogue. And but I think for me it became important because um, because halacha became important, and because I was involved in a conservative synagogue with I mm-hmm. Okay.
6: So are there are there times when my daughter would not? Are there things she would not be allowed to do? Yes. And such as.
0: Such as have a bat mitzvah here. Okay. But. but
6: the, so. She could have one elsewhere, which she has. She's, yeah. She had one. Precisely. Um, but she would not have been able to hear unless she converted, unless I converted? Or she, no, no, no. She Her, would convert first.
0: She she could convert second, and meaning the the way that she would count in a Jewish legal sense is by affirming a Jewish identity through the ritual of mikvah,
2: mm-hmm.
0: um, at which point she could count in a minyan, she could participate fully, ritually, as Carolyn just said, so the the limits for someone who is not halakhically Jewish are the same as they are for someone who is not Jewish at all.
6: So it would be inappropriate for her at, at, in a service. I'm just using her as a yeah, specific, yeah. generic example. But so it would not be appropriate for her to, um, at a mitzvah, to go up and, and uh, do one of the aliyahs uh, at, at, uh, when the Torah is being read. So the, pro- the, right
2: the
0: right. problem with answering it in that language is I think it's perfectly appropriate, it's just not halakhically permissible. Mm-hmm.
6: So it's, it's really, it's in her heart as to what she feels is appropriate. I mean, she, she may know what's what by law she's allowed to do, but it's her choice then whether to...
0: To affirm her Jewish identity. Yeah. yeah. yeah.
2: Right. But she's
0: she's post-bat mitzvah. Mm-hmm. That means that it really is her choice. Yeah. Um, and the thing that's really important for me to emphasize, even though I, th- I think it's clear, is that a Jewish community that prides itself <coughs> on coercive, and judgmental practice is one whose halakha is actually just a mask for those things. Um, and we as a community struggle with those limits. It's a very, very difficult thing, because we have many families who are, who are intermarried. And in fact, it's a point of pride that we have so many families who call this place home, knowing that they are welcome. Everybody here is welcome. We have people who are not Jewish and not connected to Jews who are part of the community. And that is a very important part of, of who we want to be, not just who we are. And so the question of affirming a Jewish identity halakhically, it has to be something that is a choice made by the person. Not because they are told to do it. In fact, when uh, every time, every time I, I'm with a candidate for conversion or affirmation, after the beitin is done, they prepare to go into the mikvah, They go into the water of the mikveh, but not yet immerse. And through the door, typically, I ask two questions. Everyone gets the same exact question. The first question is, um, this ritual of halachic conversion only works if it is an act of free will. If you are doing this of your own accord, with no pressure from anyone at all. Is that the case? And their answer has to be, yes, I am doing this of my own free will. it, It has to be that way. And the second one is, you know that with this completion of conversion, you are obligated in the way that every Jew by birth or by choice is obligated, according to Jewish law. And the answer is yes. So you might imagine that that's scary. It could be scary to people who don't want it, but to someone who wants it, it's not scary at all. It's the most obvious, delightful, giggly kind of answer that happens. So, you know, I don't know your daughter, and we're only using her as a symbol. So to anybody, it's got to be what they want. Frankly, the Jewish world is the Jewish world needs as much Jewish pride as possible, and Jewish law is only one way in. So, in as much as it's a principled part of my Jewish life and the way that we define ourselves as a community, I'm proud that Jewishness is bigger than Halacha. I'm very proud of that. I find it very problematic the narrowness of Jewishness being defined, especially right now, by the Israeli government, who sees all forms of Judaism that, are, that don't conform to ultra-Orthodoxy as not Judaism. It's deeply, deeply problematic. So I feel pain every time I have to say no, not because I feel like I'm not giving the halachic answer. I feel pain because I don't think it's the only Jewish answer, and I'm required to give this specific kind of answer. I have to go back to my question again,
1: because I have to clarify I, it's okay for me to go into the mikvah with my kid? Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Even if I haven't done my own conversion yet?
0: Yes. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, the most compelling possible way to do your own as well. Mm Mm-hmm. Like to do it together. Yeah, if you, Mm -hmm. if if this, you know, uh, you know, it's going to sound like I'm reading off of a Hallmark card, but, (laughs) you know, you're this is like the sacred moment that you're leading your child to Right. the only reason you would give your child this incredible gift is if it mattered that much to you too you don't want this in some external way <laughs>
2: you're
0: right. this is this is yeah. the two of, this is your family yeah. so you know as pastor I would say like go for it like it's so right. beautiful yeah. if it's right for your child it's right for you
1: yeah and then I have question,
5: but I
0: also want to leave room for other people so I can hold it. Right, so hold on, we'll see who else has stuff that we haven't uh, wrote yet.
5: I would be curious, since we're sort of on the topic, um, about what one needs to learn before going in front of the bait team.
0: Great. That is a matter of really serious historical variability. What must someone learn before going before a bait date? Let me answer in the way that I really feel it and then backtrack a little bit. Um, They need to be true to themselves and to have no line between me and the Jews. That's not something you learn. I actually say almost every time I meet with someone for the first time, uh, and this class is a great experiment for me. I've never had a a group experience, because no one's on the same exact path, starting from the same place, but we're sharing the journey. But I usually say, you know, Judaism is an identity. It's not a skill set. You can't learn it. You can't learn to be Jewish. You are Jewish, or you're not Jewish. And the familiarity comes along the way, but once it's something you can't choose not to do, it's who you are. So at a beitin, can I quiz someone and say, you know, um, prove to me that you're a Jew? Well, First of all, yucky question. Second of all, no, I can't prove it to you. That's like asking me to prove to you that I love my life partner. I cannot prove this to you. I am deeply in love, unconditionally committed. And I can't prove it. In fact, Pirkei Avot, uh, which is a part of the mission around the year 400, um, says, love Love dependent upon any one thing is not going to last. And love dependent on nothing will last. So, what must a person learn before going to a beitim? Nothing. Nothing. And that's a controversial answer because in many places there's a set course of study, even in our stuff. We have a very sort of regimented series that we're learning, exposing all of us to the basics of Jewish practice, Torah, ideas, yada, yada, holidays. Um, in some communities, you have to go through an entire year of holidays, showing up at shul like a punch card, you um, but I'll tell you that my experience being on other people's Bate din, right, Bate Deens, um, leads me to believe that that is so superficial or can be. can be. It can be very, very deep. But can also be meaningless, just going through the stuff so I can graduate and be a Jew. I, I don't believe in that kind of identity formation. So for my Bate din, when I convene it, first of all, I only convene, convene Bate din for people I know. And when I know someone, I can look at them and say, are you a Jew? You can ask some people in this room. I've asked that question pretty bluntly over and over to a few people. And they say, I know, I know, I know. Not yet. Because by the time they're a Jew, I know it first anyway. <laughs> like, because it's sort of like a coming out. Like, This is who I am. This is who I am. And for everyone, it's a different emotional thing. I can't speak from inside the experience. But I I would also say this. Knowing nothing about Judaism is not a good way to become a Jew. <laughs> right? Um, it's a lot easier, actually, to know less. Uh, and the more you know sometimes, the harder it is to be. I mean, prayer is like that. I I found when I became more familiar with what the prayers meant, I had a harder time praying. Ironically, or maybe, for those who have been there, maybe that groks. Mm-hmm. You get that? Um, so... I think having a grounding in Shabbat and holidays, having a grounding in what Torah means, familiar with what happens in synagogues, right? I'm defining Judaism as a synagogue-centered, communally-based life. So getting the map of that, finding your way, um, not becoming fluent, I don't think that's necessary, but knowing your home in all those really tangible ways that's what's most important but the very simple answer is nothing
1: you don't
0: hold it in Hebrew and ask <laughs> <laughs> no but i would ask you i would ask you um, does hebrew matter to you
2: mm-hmm.
0: because you know the global jewish people speaks a language
2: yeah.
0: so hebrew has to mean something yeah. even if you don't know what it means yeah. yeah that's the kind of question that i think really matters most because that demonstrates sort of your existential place in the world. Uh-huh. Used to be Yiddish would have been the definition of that. Yeah. Right? So, yeah. I, my grandmother asks I me, mean, why don't you speak Jewish?
1: I'm smiling because my husband and I you know, it's like our second date and he was like well, I'm, I'm a therapist so I was like so, what are your red flags? And he, like, he had just broken up with somebody who didn't really understand his Judaism and he's like, well I really need you to at least, you know, understand Judaism or Know, you know, participate a little bit. I said, oh, that's funny. I have Hebrew tapes in my car, because like, <laughs> I had found these, these Hebrew tapes,
0: and I like, would just
1: drive around and listen to these Hebrew tapes, <laughs> and I was like, but <laughs> <I was, like, laughs>
0: so let, me, let me just say this. You're weird. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's really weird. But it was just
1: great, and it was just, like, oh, okay, I think
0: Good work. <laughs> <laughs> I'm uh, glad to be part of the story. For
1: Hebrew, it matters to me. Yes. Indeed. <laughs> <cool. my> <laughs> so, on the path to conversion, and maybe for people who've done it, Christmas time is coming up, and for those people who are Christian, like, I don't follow Catholicism, Catholicism even though I was raised Catholic. Um, I find, like, giving up Christmas, like, the music and the lights, Challenging. I didn't think I would, mm-hmm. but as the time is like coming near, I'm like starting to think about it. So,
2: yeah,
0: what
1: are people's are your thoughts about something we like do that? We well. That's stockings? I just want my, my presents. I tell all my friends, like, you're getting me Hanukkah presents, and like, <laughs> I don't know, and really does it like that. But I want my Hanukkah presents, don't call well, them Christmas will presents. You'd be
0: surprised, some people do.
1: Yeah, some of my Hanukkah presents and my lights.
0: The The question I get. Asked most often, actually, about Christmas by people who uh, adopt a Jewish identity, um, is about going home, going home to parents or other cousins, family. So, you know, uh, my answer to that is always the same thing: go home. You know, Christmas is not evil; it's just not Jewish. <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, Christmas need not be evil, but it need it needs to not be Jewish. Um, and so uh... the answer my answer is that there can be no christmas in a jewish home um, it's a very complicated dogmatic uh... approach but the reason for that is um, that jewish identity can interact lovingly with other traditions but it's not judaism to include christmas um, it is actually antithetical to judaism to include christmas um, but that's not to say that I don't go to Christmas parties. I'll go to Christmas parties and love them, and in fact, be moved by them. Mm-hmm. I watch all the same movies. I'm an American. It's all in the texture of our lives, the social fabric. But I will tell you, I actually wrote this piece in a book called Thanksgiving Torah. It came out, it's actually a pamphlet, it's not even a book. But um, uh, I am aware the day after Thanksgiving that I'm a Jew. Because there is nowhere I can turn that isn't full of Christmas music. Uh-huh. Now, uh-huh. I've grown up in that, and I find the Christmas music enchanting. Much of it has been written by Jews, ironically. Um, but uh, but what I want to say very clearly is that there is nothing wrong with Christmas. But there is nothing Jewish about Christmas, except that Jesus was Jewish. Um, so, so that there's loss that goes into that it's very important in fact one of the things that was very very interesting to me I worked with a a couple uh, this is years ago Um, she was raised Jewish he was not her family celebrated Christmas her whole life his family did too he became Jewish and was the one that didn't want Christmas and she said I'm Jewish. I've always been Jewish. I've always had Christmas. So it can be a real point of conflict when it comes to a family for whom that is one of the traditions. Um and so I say again sort of with a very clear answer but with an understanding that it's not an easy answer is that there cannot be Christmas in a Jewish home. And
4: does that also apply to, does that also apply to all other religions and everything else?
0: Well, not and everything else. I'm sure there are other things that are nice so to have. So, for your
4: example, own. in a mixed marriage, where I mean, that's and that's everyone's question with their identities. If your parents are from two different religions, None you different. might share two identities, or your your one identity might have different an understanding. In which case, you might, for example, if in, in our home, I would like to, we would like to celebrate both mm-hmm. um, Jewish holidays and Hindu holidays.
0: So let me say this. I think it's really important to establish, number one, that my answers are... Um, first of all, are only my answers. Um, and in much the same way that Halakha tries to achieve sort of an ideal state, um, when someone asks me, is it permissible to have a Christmas tree in my Jewish home, the answer is no. But many times, in blended families, That question's not asked, and it's good that it's not asked, because I can't give a Jewish ruling for a non-Jew who is just as much a partner in establishing this family's life. But if it's two Jewish partners, my answer should, I think, make sense. For a home in which not everyone is Jewish, my answer can't be the only answer being presented. I certainly hope that if there's a faithful Jew and a faithful Muslim or a faithful Jew and a faithful Hindu or, you know, who are making a home together, it's going to be more complicated than a rabbi's perspective. Um, and so I, I think it takes negotiation. It's one of the things that makes interfaith families um, very precious because there's so much tradition coming in, but also very difficult because navigating which one is manifest is very hard. So, you know, I have my humble absolutes, as Rabbi Oren Kula calls them, um, but I recognize that life is more complicated than, than an ideal picture that I would paint. And by ideal, I don't mean better than. I just mean uh, more purely Jewish in its, in its experience.
6: So can you convert, can one convert if one does not believe in God? Yes. Hmm. Is that question asked?
0: Not by me. Maimonides destroyed Judaism by making it uh, rational and belief-based. He made belief a commandment. Um, It's traceable, actually, that it wasn't only him, but his was the voice that was loudest, um, describing the laws of conversion. And I actually have a talk on this. Uh, It's on SoundCloud. It's called um, The Birth of Heresy, or When Heresy Was Born, something like that. Um, Maimonides changed all of the rules. Not all the rules. Maimonides changed the rule um, about conversion You can find the parallel language in the Gemara, the Talmuds around the year 600 CE, that says you tell someone who wants to become Jewish some of the light mitzvot, and then you bring them to mikveh. He said, when a person's about to convert, ask them if they believe in God, the one primary command. If you look at the Torah, there is no command to believe. There is the assumption that there is a relationship with God. But the very first command is not to believe in God. It is, I'm the Lord, your God. So it's not a command to believe. So um, in Judaism, there is no such thing as heresy until you have orthodoxy. And orthodoxy, small o, was, uh, was not meaning idea orthodoxy instead of orthopraxy, the practice. Orthodoxy is not a Jewish idea in that sense. Belief and dogma, there's no such thing. So the short answer is, yes, you can convert to Judaism without believing in God, specifically because we don't know what believing in God means with any one answer. Salman Schechter was famous in a book he wrote um, called Aspects of Rabbinic Theology, articulating that there is no rabbinic theology, no one coherent thread of what God is or isn't. In another book he said, we dismiss no theory for fear that it might contain a germ of truth. So if I can't figure out what belief means, non-belief is actually easier to understand and might have a grain of truth. Happens to be that my personal theology uh, is fairly strange compared to the Torah's theology. My personal theology is very strange compared to the Talmud's theology and probably even compared to, you know, anybody else's. Which is why I've, I say this all the time, I have much more in common with atheists than I do with believers. Because believers know what they believe, and I find their surety really scary. And um, close enough to idolatry, because they know what they believe in, it's locatable and definable, close enough to idolatry that it scares me. I'd rather not believe at all.
1: Which one? The one from <laughs> <laughs> but Um So I, just being in Berkeley and Oakland and, and being around a lot of interfaith couples and you know, right around the time when my son was about to be born and born, we had a lot of discussion about circumcision. Mm-hmm. And I was actually really struck by a lot of the Jewish couples that decided not to circumcise.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I remember... Like there were a couple couples, and they were like, "Oh yeah, we didn't, we didn't do it." And I was like, I looked at my husband. I was like, "Why, why did we do that?" Because it was it was a really really horrible process. Like, we didn't do the the pull up snip thing. We did the whole like it took a long time. It was really gruesome. Mm. I was freaking out. My kid was freaking out. It was. I mean, like I held it together, and then I like totally yeah. fell apart. And it was you know, a week after a pretty traumatic birth experience. So it was like, why did we do that? Right. So I was really um, struck when I found out like these kids didn't like, what? They didn't they didn't have to do this? So I'm curious as to her rabbi here in Berkeley. There's a lot of other people doing these things that are not like they're doing symbolic circumstances. What are your thoughts about that? Because, I mean, I've had a lot of conversations with my husband and mm-hmm. my father-in-law, and at this point, like, I get it, and I'm not sorry we did it, and I feel good about it. Mm-hmm. Not great, but good. But I'm just kind of curious as to what your
0: thoughts so, are. So let me see if I, if I hear the specific question you're asking, which is, I think... That's very Berkeley with me. I hear you asking. I <laughs> am <laughs> um, asking. Why you do what I your think it's an important are. thing? Yeah. Or how do I respond when someone says, I don't want to do this?
1: Both.
0: Okay. So I worked with a couple very recently who came to me really openly with a question, not sure what they were going to do. Mm-hmm. Um, the first few things that I say are what I said before, which is, this is a very big thing.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: This hurts. There's blood. This is a very awful decision. And by awful, I actually mean It mm-hmm. It is a very, very intense decision. I was committed, you know, before I even had a partner, if, that if I had a son, my son would be converted. Mm-hmm. It's not the I want him to look like me mm-hmm. thing. Um, it is the this is what a Jew is.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: From the from the verse within your karma zone, Grace After Meals that we say, Shechatamta mm-hmm. Biv the covenant is sealed in my flesh. Mm-hmm. It is. Mm-hmm. And by my flesh I mean my mother's flesh too, because I am my mother's flesh. Mm-hmm. And so it's not only about men. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, so number one, it is an essential part of Jewish identity. Mm-hmm. And I have arguments, especially given the Bay Area's controversy, with um let me use something that isn't this to illustrate it. You know, I have a friend who says, I'm an atheist. I'm a, cont- I'm a content atheist. I'm not an angry atheist.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Right? So not someone who wants to prove to me.
2: Right.
0: But someone who says, this is who I am. So there are those who um, all they can talk about is intactivism. All they can talk about is, this is cruelty, trauma, savagery, primal wrong, evil. Sure to the point where you get things like the anti-Semitic cartoons that came out a year ago in San Francisco, mm-hmm. Moyle Monster, mm-hmm. right? Um, and it looked just like Nuremberg. And it, it was propaganda that could have been taken out of Poland or Germany. Mm-hmm. So it's not to say that there isn't a legitimate argument against circumcision. In fact, I think there are very legitimate arguments against circumcision. The question is, where is the question coming from? So, given the questions coming from you, And in this couple, when I spoke to them, the question was coming from them, in a very sincere seeking, sort of like, what is our Jewishness going to be? Mm -hmm. Um, I also don't like when people, even though I just did, um, bring the Holocaust into every conversation. Mm -hmm. Except in this case, I find it to be very true. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think of the scene in Europa, Europa. I don't know if you've seen it. But it's a very deep scene where a boy is trying to hide his Jewishness for fear that he's...
1: Was that Europa, Europa? Or was mm-hmm. that, there was mm-hmm. another French one. Is that the
0: French one? Yeah. That is yeah. that. Okay, yeah, I saw that. Yeah. yeah. So where a, a, a man is trying to, a young man is trying to hide his circumcision by reversing it.
1: Oh, no, it's a different Which
0: was done uh, actually in Rome as well, because nudity was prevalent uh, in Rome, and so having a circumcision identified you publicly many times right. as other. That's a second. And so, um, I also just so I can put it out there, I never use the medical arguments for circumcision,
2: mm-hmm.
0: like uh, you know, proving it again,
2: mm-hmm.
0: right? So here's here's what I said to the couple, what I'll say to you, what I'll say to anybody, is that if I believe this were bad for a child, mm-hmm. I would not do it.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: If I believe this was going to hurt my son, and I mean hurt him in a in a damaging way. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't do it.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I will tell you, and this is what I, I shared that year, and I, I do think about it all the time actually, is that what went through my soul in that moment was I screamed quietly to myself, silently to myself, and I said may this be the worst pain I ever cause anyone ever.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: It sensitized me to the blood that is spilled in this world.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And the covenant that I have with God in the way that I mean it, um, both what I mean by covenant and what I mean by God, is not based on me being a man, Mm -hmm. it's based on me never wanting blood to be spilled needlessly, Mm -hmm. and I knew that best right then. Um, I also take deep pride in being a Jewish man. I'm so proud to be a Jew, Mm -hmm. and I hope that Jewish women say the same thing about being Jewish women, Mm -hmm. but I'm proud to be a Jewish man, and this has been the mark of a Jewish man Mm -hmm. through time. One of the biggest challenges that I've faced, and it's not a challenge that I face, but it's fascinating and very deep, is um, I've had the opportunity many times since moving here, and once when I was in Boston, um, for someone who is a transgender Jew, Mm
2: -hmm.
0: talking about the moment of entry Mm -hmm. that they identify as a man. So what is the ritual requirement in that moment? Mm-hmm. And if I were cruel, I would say nothing.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Because identifying as a man requires something. Mm-hmm. Now far be it for me to delineate precisely what the experience is because that's still being established today. Mm-hmm. We're still in the vanguard of halakhic inclusion in that sense. Mm-hmm. But I, you know, I was taught by at least two people in profound ways who have really altered my sense of this. That not only can it be right, it can be affirming. Mm -hmm. So, um, it is a complicated question. It's not a medical question. It's a Jewish identity question. And in much the same way that I say to anybody, Jewishness is bigger than halakha. Jewishness is bigger than circumcision. Jewishness is bigger than any one of our component parts. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: But those essential parts have been core identity moments, core identity aspects of Jewishness as transmitted through generations Mm -hmm. when it's been denied us, when we have been assaulted for circumcision Mm
2: -hmm.
0: that's when we recognize they're telling us we can't be Jews Mm
2: -hmm.
0: when we are told, and through history we have been, you're not allowed to read Torah Mm -hmm. we know that they're telling us we can't be Jews so it happens to be that much of my reaction is from a combination of pride and defensiveness, mm-hmm. survivor mentality, and tradition and continuity. Mm-hmm. Right? All of that is in the mix, but um, in the moment of my son's circumcision, there's a tradition to have uh, a kvater, which is um, godfather, is actually a good way of translating it. Um, it doesn't have to be a man, but in many cases it is. Um, hold the child.
1: Yeah, we did that.
0: Well, right? So, my father... We tried to do that. My father held my son, and there I was doing the bris. And in that moment, we were every Jewish man who's ever lived. Mm -hmm. My father was Abraham, and I was Isaac, and my son is Jacob. Mm -hmm. But I was also Abraham, and my son is Isaac in that God forbid moment.
2: Mm -hmm. And,
0: you know, I think that Jewish history coursing through any one of our bodies is a cause for celebration and holiness, even if it also evokes pain and tears if it were damaging, it would not be worthy of those descriptions. There are people who, uh, who make the argument of too young to choose. Too th- that would be true if this were damaging.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So the arguments against circumcision, um, I don't think they hold water. I think they come from places of, of privilege mm-hmm. and come from s- smug certainty mm-hmm. of what is good and what is right, and he uses moral language to describe a moment that is established as safe. Mm-hmm. It is absolutely vulnerable and pain, but it's safe and holy.
1: That's very helpful. I mean, at the time I just I had a lot of... we debated it a lot, which was helpful. I mean, I was always very clear that men came to me with,
0: you know, please don't do this. Yeah. Look, <laughs> you know, in much the same way that <clears throat> that our most, not just sensitive parts, and that's not meant to make mm-hmm. a joke of anything, mm-hmm. um, the things that we are most sensitive to mm-hmm. um, cause us to be also reactionaries within. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are parts of Judaism that are worthy of re-examination. Mm-hmm. The question is, is the re-examination... Coming from a place of understanding, mm-hmm. or is it coming from a place of reacting and unable to see the possibility that I had a bad experience or I'm dealing with my pain and that's not everyone's experience? Mm-hmm. It's a very, very hard line to draw. Um, so I had a yeah. funny experience
3: when I, had, when I had my son and daughter because suddenly I felt like I had an obligation to do it for my father, and I guess. My father, because he's the Jewish one, I guess I felt that it was—it went beyond my father, obviously, um, to uphold the Jewish um, lineage, so mm-hmm. to speak. That's mm-hmm. how, but it felt so strong, and I know it was hormonal. But mm-hmm. um, I was—you know—my husband's not Jewish, and I had, really to, had to. do it. Yeah. And then um, I had a traumatic birth also, so I wasn't able to be as present because I was on another floor. with, all mm-hmm. um, and he was premature and he was down on another floor and I had my husband go and I ended up um, letting my husband make the decision mm. but he he knew how important it was for me and and my father was to him so he went with that but then the the obstetrician who was Jewish went to my husband and just said and I wasn't there are you sure you want to do that Oh. and it blew me away because my you know we, it was such a hard decision and we did have many friends that kept saying how could you do it and right. it wasn't it wasn't you know nothing penetrated because I had already made up my mind but because right. I valued it so much but what it was really difficult I have to say
0: that's very complicated yeah. you know it's interesting in in the book I mentioned by Lawrence Hoffman, The Covenant of Blood, he's a a leading thinker in the reform movement in the Jewish world at large, but he works at Hebrew Union College, the reform movement's rabbinical school. And um, he says how in his analysis of blood, and circumcision in particular, um, he comes to the conclusion from a liberal theological place that maybe we should not do this anymore. He says maybe we shouldn't. And he's speaking to a group of very open-minded Jewish leaders, emerging rabbis, and they all agreed the whole way through in terms of like, maybe we should, maybe we don't need to do this. But he's, then he said, So are you going to do this with your child? He said, Of course mm-hmm. I'm going to circumcise my Right. Yeah. It's a very,
2: you know,
0: That's it's, a, how I thought. Yeah. Yeah, it's a very, very loaded, very, very intense part of, part of uh, identity.
4: Does that make someone not Jewish?
0: If someone is born Jewish and doesn't have a circumcision, no, it does not make them not Jewish. Makes them not circumcised. <laughs> it's a very, very interesting question. There's a case that I faced a few years ago, of, um, and I don't even know why they told me. I shouldn't have had to know. It, really, not because of the halakha, but because I, I don't, I don't know why the family told me. But family committed to the shul. They, you know, come as regularly as most of the people in the shul, and they. Uh, the bar mitzvah's coming up, and as, maybe it's a few weeks before the bar mitzvah, they say, by the way, our son wasn't circumcised. And they say, <laughs> they were sort of t- like, what are you going to do about it, Rabbi? <laughs> um, what do you think of that? Right, and I said, thank you for telling me. I'll get back to you. And I called a mentor of mine, and, and I, said, uh, I said, here's the deal. And the person said, he's Jewish. Mm-hmm. He's born of a Jewish mother, he's a Jew. Did they make the right decision? No. Is he Jewish? Yes. So he had his bar mitzvah. Would so you say the
6: same if he had been born of a Jewish father but not
0: Jewish mother? No, because halakhically the only way to become a Jew, if that's the, if that's the birth, is through circumcision and... Uh, yeah, through circumcision and, uh, and mikvah. If he would had a medical circumcision, only the hatafat ambrit, the, the more minor procedure. I mean, but
6: as far as being Jewish, not yes, conservative
0: Judaism defines a Jew as being born of a Jewish mother.
6: So what we were saying earlier was not about conservative Jews, it was just about I mean, that having a grandparent who was Jewish.
0: That was for the law yeah. of return to Israel.
6: Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. yeah
1: it's just very fascinating to me because my husband is incredibly rational. And this was one thing where I was being the scientist <laughs> and he was like, no it's not rational, we just have to and
0: I was right. like, okay. Traditionally, in okay uh, when you look at the categories of mitzvah, the categories of command there are ones that are called mishpat and ones that are called chok mm-hmm. mishpat are the ones that are rational laws the ones that we might have come to on our own thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not steal right, so, okay maybe we would have come to that on our own um, they have reasons we can identify, but then there's chok. There are rules that have no apparent rationale, like kashrut. Why keep kosher? Well, the only answer is because you should keep kosher. right? Mindful eating, that is a very powerful thing, but that need not be kashrut. Right? So um, the classic example of chok, of the mysterious law, the law whose rationale is not provided by the Torah, And only a few are willing to examine the reason for mitzvot, the ta'ameyah mitzvot, the rationale uh, for the mysterious ones. The classic one is called shatnez. We are not allowed when making a garment to combine the product of an animal with a product of plant. So, to combine uh, linen and cotton, is that both?
2: Linen and wool. I always
0: mess that up. Linen and <laughs> wool. It's a mysterious rule in the Torah. You're not supposed to do it. There's no rationale offered. It's pretty bizarre, and frankly, like, we've got more important mitzvot to worry about, I think.
1: What are you supposed to do about what? couture? Uh, <laughs> now, like, suffer.
0: Suffer. suffer. Yeah, I don't have any good answers for that. But the truth is, I'm not cultured, so what do I know? Um, but there are those who actually look at those mitzvot that are so mysterious and they try to present rational explanations, such as, When God created the world, uh, the order of the world was the delineating of different domains. Animal, plant, celestial, sky, all those things. And so by combining the two of them, you actually question, you subvert the order of creation. Is that in the Torah? No. Is that a way of trying to get our rational heads around a, a, a mitzvah, a command? Yeah. So when it comes to, like, can I think it through, can you make me think differently, Right? There's some mitzvot, or some parts of who we are that are just not, we're not open for question, you know, so it's a, it's a powerful example of one.
4: So, quick question on that, is that just in the spinning, so a single garment, or could you, for example, wear leather shoes and then, I don't
0: know, like a a cotton shirt? Cotton undershirt, yes, you could. It's one garment not being made of the two things. Correct. Okay.
7: It's all plant. It's not just linen and wool. It's, Correct. All, plant, it's all plant and, animal and all, all
0: animals. Interesting, but polyester
1: doesn't really count as anything. It's just plastic. Right. right it's, it's fake. It's it's polyester. <laughs>
0: polyester <laughs> the Torah didn't know about polyester. Neither, neither should we. But so
6: like, <laughs> for collars. I do can have, have, we get can all just polyester. unlearn polyester?
0: I do have a, a rabbinic leisure suit that I put on <laughs> once in a while. But <laughs> 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 for <program> only. We've got time for one more if if anybody's got a question they're waiting with.
5: I'm trying to even think of how to ask this question, but by obeying certain mitzvah mitzvot and ignoring others, because there are some that it seems you know people are very passionate about and they're almost accepted as the community. This is something you have to do, and then there are others that it seems mm-hmm. the community has decided, has reinterpreted or dismissed, or you know. the the wool and and linen you know, you're saying maybe that's not as important you know, are we making them all less important?
0: (laughs) Touche. Right, by demonstrating my willingness to judge some mitzvot as essential and some as not, I am precisely uh, or I am potentially doing what you just said. Right, which is um, anyone can arbitrarily do to any mitzvah what I just did. There are some who would say, that's why I should not do what I just did. Mm -hmm. The reason why I believe that some mitzvot are more important than others is because they have a more um, pervasive impact on the way we conduct ourselves in the world. I was just meeting with um, someone who does organizing for social justice uh, with the PICO network and is interested in having rabbis be more involved. And they asked me the question today, why do you think synagogues um, aren't integrating well into this organizing model that they were talking about. I said, you know, because part of the way that this group organizes is by doing one-on-ones and small parlor meetings and saying, what are the things that matter to you? And when you, you approach Jews in a synagogue context about what matters to you, you might be saying, like, well, what do you think the synagogue wants you to say matters? And so the answers can be, you know, like, I'm worried about Israel, I'm worried about anti-Semitism, I'm worried about this, I'm worried about that. But I said, "What's?" then I responded, what I feel is missing in that Jewish response to a very good question is what the prophets worried about. Right? The prophets did not tell people to keep kosher and keep Shabbat, although that's in there a little bit. The prophets said, there are naked people, give them clothes. There are hungry people, give them food. Right? That is an essential Uh, Jewish act in the world. And it might be my subjective experience, my very particular path in life, um, but I do think that some things are more important than others. I do think that um, caring for each other is more important than driving on Shabbat. I do think that coming together as a community is more important than the rule about driving on Shabbat. It's a rule. It is a rule. If we want biblical basis for the rule do not kindle a fire on Shabbat it happens we don't kindle a fire in your dwelling place you don't dwell in your car hopefully <laughs> although you know, I don't mean to be snarky that is true for some um, you know so your pistons start a fire even electric cars that the sparks so I'm violating a biblical rule for the purpose of what I consider to be a more uh, important Jewish act um, and there are a lot of them. There are a lot of things. So when I speak like this, sometimes people say, well, you're standing on a slippery slope. You're just, you just stepped onto the slope. And you know, the response is one that I quote from my teacher, Rabbi Jeremy Kalmanovsky in New York. I was part of a group lobbying for greater inclusion of the GLBT Jewish community within rabbinate, being cantors, Jewish leaders, youth directors, uh, whatevers, uh, families let's say. Um, so I remember someone asking Jeremy that question. And Jeremy's response to the slippery slope accusation was somewhere between writing to synagogue on Shabbat and another biblical rule, which is someone who is a Kohen, a priest by lineage, marrying a divorcee, which according to the Torah is not allowed. So he said somewhere between driving to shul and a Kohen and a grusha and a divorcee, we live on a slippery slope. That's where we live. So your, your challenge is absolutely well put. My willingness to do what I did demonstrates that we live in the gray. And the questions of Christmas are precisely within that, too, because the Torah doesn't know about Christmas, and yet I answer as if there's biblical authority behind my answer. Right? And I do think that that's my responsibility to answer for Jewish tradition. As humbling as that is for me, I think it's my responsibility. So I answer with authority, but I recognize that the context is fairly gray. So, you know, my hope is, and with this we'll close for now, that, like, number one, your questions, my questions, all of our questions, that's what makes Judaism Judaism. There is no question that's taboo, right? The answers are less fun than the questions. That's really been my experience as a Jewish learner. So my hope is that, number one, this is fun, this is worthwhile. Number two is, some of the answers that I've offered might be hard, but they aren't meant to be cold meant to be real points of engagement, and I hope that we'll be able to do that. Uh, and I'll look forward to the next time we do this. So thanks, everybody.